I couldn't even stand up anymore. I was breathing about once a second, just... (laughs) It was really cool to see everybody dropping their day, really being like, no, this is what I'm here to do today. Kind of gave me a sense of hope. I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero. You can support this project and the Teton County Search and Rescue volunteers by making a donation today. To learn more, visit www.tetoncountysar.org donate. A longtime Jackson resident, Dr. David Schlim, has a long history of rescuing others. He first visited Nepal in 1979 to work as a volunteer doctor at an aid post at 14,000 feet. He also served as head of the Himalayan Rescue Association for more than a decade. In that role, he treated all of the survivors of the 1996 Everest expedition, detailed in John Krakauer's book Into Thin Air, and more recently the movie Everest. Dr. Schlim also provided free medical care for a Tibetan Buddhist monastery, where he developed close ties with some of the greatest meditation teachers of the 20th century. But on this day, as Dr. Schlim went out for an adventure with his wife and another friend on Teton Pass, the roles reversed. I'm David Schlim, and I've been living here since 1998. My wife, Jane, is an absolutely avid skier, so she's gone all the time. And so she was gone skiing that day, and it, it had snowed about a foot, and it hadn't snowed in a couple of weeks. It was uh, like 11th of January. But I was working on writing a book, and so I was always trying to, you know, make myself stay at home and work and stuff. But then the new snow, the fact that they were going, called out to me. We were going to do triple direct on the south of the Teton Pass. But we were a little slow getting going. My daughter was having a ski day with her school, and she'd forgotten something, and so we had to drive out to the village And then I grabbed something to eat. So it was about 11 o'clock in the morning by the time we got up to the pass that day. The day started off better than usual. When you ski with someone like my friend Jane and her friend John, they're so efficient, and I don't go quite as much. And so this day, for some reason, I had my skins already on my skis, and I clicked in, and I started uh, south. Usually in those kind of temperatures, my hands get cold right away. My hands weren't cold and I was ahead of my friends, that rarely happened. So I thought I was feeling pretty good. I just started skiing and I had a kind of discomfort in the backs of both of my upper arms, like my triceps. And I thought like maybe I'd done too many push-ups, except that I remembered that I hadn't. So I thought that's strange, but it was both sides. I didn't think too much of it. So I kept going, kind of shifted to more of my left arm, a little bit up in my neck and stuff. And I thought, you know, these are symptoms that people talk about with a heart attack. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I've taken care of a lot of people with heart attacks. And I thought about it, but I said, well, I don't have any chest pain, and I don't feel short of breath, so maybe, I don't know. Actually, it kind of puzzled. So I kept going, and I stayed ahead of my friends, which is rare. But then, then I did start getting some chest pain. But it wasn't where it was supposed to be. It wasn't my left side. It didn't feel heavy. It was like a burning discomfort under my sternum, which is not typical of heart pain. So I thought, well, maybe it's that croissant with ham and cheese that I ate that I didn't have time to heat up. And so I just kept going. I just had this whole inner conversation with myself. But 
Uh, I'm not sharing it with anybody. That's kind of my nature anyway. And so then with the chest pain and with the pain in my arm and my neck and stuff, I thought, you know, it could be a heart attack. But so while I had a stress test a year and a half ago, that was normal. That doesn't really mean that it can't be a heart attack. I just thought, yeah, I hope it goes away. And so I just kept going. But then Jane and John ran into some women uh, who were skiing there for the first time and started giving them some advice about where they could go. And that got, that kind of group kind of went past me because I was starting to slow down, kept going. After a little while, uh, we were kind of heading towards the Olympic Bowl, and they went around a ridge and went out of sight. And then suddenly I got so short of breath that I couldn't even stand up anymore. I was breathing about once a second, just <laughs> like that. And it wasn't enough. I couldn't, I couldn't stand up, use my muscles to stand. So I fell over in the soft snow, and I'm laying there, and I go, hmm. I hope they still have their phones on because, you know, we tend to turn them off. Reception's not that good. And so while I was laying there thinking how to get my phone out, a couple that I knew skied by, and I was right on the trail. And I'm laying there panting and stuff, and they slow way down. And they look at me and they say, are you okay? And I stuck my thumb up like this. And I go, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> and I'm just saying that because if it can help somebody in the future admit that something's not right a little bit sooner, you know, might have helped. But it was funny. And all these years later, now we're talking about four and a half years, I can't really explain why I was so reluctant to uh, admit something was wrong or to ask for help. I still hadn't really said the words heart attack to myself, but I did call my wife. Luckily, she answered the phone because you know how it is. Maybe I was changing clothes. You know, you, you don't look for your friends that much when you're skinning in. And, and so she she didn't understand at first. And she goes, well, I'll come back and give you the car keys, and then you can drive down, and we'll meet you at the bottom. And I go, I'm really not okay. And that was the, that was the moment, really, for me. I, I'm, I'm really not okay. So she goes, I'll be right there. She and John get there. And John is a really competent backcountry guy, a world-class kayaker and skier and all this stuff. So, But we still hadn't said the word heart attack. They said, what do you want to do? I said, well, maybe I can ski out. So I stood up, and I could stand up long enough to get one skin off, and then I fell down again. And so then we were a little bit stuck at that moment. And then two guys skied up, and one of them was a physician assistant, and I knew him. So he said, what's going on? And I said, I've got this chest pain, and I, I can't breathe. And I'll tell you, this was the greatest thing of the whole thing, because he just took charge and also had a really uh, calm—I just loved the way he said it. He said, you know— Looks like you're having a heart attack. We need to get you out of here. Jane, why don't you call 911? And just like that, like, oh, you're having a heart attack. Oh, God. You know, it's just like, looks like you're having a heart attack. We need to get you out of here. I go, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> and um, so then I remember looking up, because I'm laying in the snow and and thinking, oh, man, she's going to call 911, and they're going to go, 
why do you think he's having a heart attack and where exactly are you? And I thought it was going to be a big conversation. And instead, like 20 seconds later, it seemed like they said a helicopter's on the way. And the reason was that just as we got in there, they were airlifting out two snowboarders. Uh, my name is Jake Urban. I own and operate the Jackson Hole Outdoor Leadership Institute. And I've been a uh, volunteer member of Teton County Search and Rescue since uh, 2010. That Friday evening, we had gotten called out for a group that was overdue, uh, missing up in Teton Pass. Kind of figured out where they were, but we couldn't quite get to them. There was elevated avalanche conditions, and it was at night. The weather was sideways per usual. We called the search off late that night. Our if I remember right, we got home sometime around 2 o'clock in the morning, and then we started, we had a briefing at about 6 a.m. the next morning. Uh, clouds were low. Uh, we couldn't get the helicopter out right off the get-go. I was partnered up with Jessica King to go out to the location where we thought the, uh, the missing persons were. And the whole time we were joking about it, which was we were trying to hustle because we knew if they got a break in the clouds, the helicopter was going to steal our thunder. And ultimately, we got into the area where those folks were found, except the helicopter beat us to them by about 20 minutes. You know, the night before, we probably skied about six or seven miles, and we probably skied close to eight miles that following morning. Dr. Schlimm is in the pass and getting ready to go out for a tour as we're getting back to the hangar. Everybody was down at the rescue cache at that moment. So they, when they said, we'll be there right away, they really meant it. At this point, I'm ready to go home, have probably a real breakfast, and, uh, and definitely get some sleep for the day. On my way back home, as I'm pulling into Wilson... Uh, there's another call out coming in on my phone. I see that it's in Teton Pass and uh, I'm right at the bottom of the pass at this point. It's interesting because even though I was in a leadership position, it was early in my tenure. So I really didn't know protocols very well. Uh, at that time, I did call our coordinator at the time, Doug, and I told him that I was at the base of Teton Pass. Doug said, get up there and find him. He's an Olympic bull. You know, we have a 63-year-old that's having a heart attack. Get on scene and tell me what's going on. That was arguably maybe the most amount of responsibility I'd been given up to that point, even though I was in a leadership position. But just to get dispatched alone, we're not a lights and sirens kind of an operation. I'm responding in a civilian vehicle, but to say that uh, you know, I was putting the pedal to the metal would probably be an understatement. Pass Ambassador Jay was up there at the time. Jay knew there was an incident going on. He was trying to kind of organize things in the parking lot to get ready for search and rescue to arrive, trying to deal with opening up some parking spaces for us. I was pretty much off to the races out the south side and just basically skinning as fast as I could to get out on scene. As I'm coming around the ridge, I make my first contact with uh, the patient Immediately, Will Mook, who is a former student of mine through the Leadership Institute, who had taken a wilderness first responder. My name is Will Mook. I recently moved here in 2012. My friends and I were skinning up from the parking lot, and we got to the radio towers or the power lines there. We saw two people kind of frantically skinning around, not really we were kind of confused at what they were doing, and so we asked, and 
They said, do you know if there's like a sled or a litter or anything here? I said, no, what's going on? They said, oh, there's a gentleman down the skin track who's having chest pain. And, and I said, okay, does anybody have a med kit or aspirin or anything? The reply was no. I knew I had a very well-stocked med kit because I just finished doing my wilderness first responder class for the second time. And so I was being made fun of for probably being a little overprepared by my buddies carrying this big pack. But I knew I had aspirin, and if somebody was having a heart attack, there's no harm in giving them aspirins. So I took off down the skin track about as fast as I could, and I showed up and said, hey, how's it going, I think. And I, I saw Dr. Slim kind of chest uh, grabbing his chest and breathing rapidly, and my recent woofer training, red, red alarm, heart attack, heart attack, heart attack, going off in my head. The folks that you were already with had kind of taken care of a lot of the the first really important stuff. And so I was just happy I had the aspirin to bring to the table. Well, what I remember really clearly is you skiing up and going, I just took a wilderness first responder course. I have an aspirin. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just like full of enthusiasm. And I go, oh, good. Because I didn't have aspirin because I wasn't going to have a heart attack. Right. You know, I was in kind of the best shape of my life. I had been biking 75 to 100 miles a week in the summer, like road biking. I had this about my 20th ski day in January. My my dad had had his first heart symptoms at the same age at 63. So in retrospect, maybe I was likely to have something. Aspirin gives people time in terms of if somebody's having a heart attack and aspirin gives them time, it gives us time to get them to the hospital. So it can reduce some signs and symptoms. And Dr. Schlimm's heart attack was not minor. At the time, I wasn't, I knew aspirin was first aid for heart attack, but I didn't realize until I read later that it improves the survival rate of an acute heart attack by about 25%. That's huge, especially when you're in a situation like me with really a delay to getting to care. Somebody had like a tubular space blanket. And I tell you, if there's one lesson, don't carry rectangular space blankets because just because they're small, get a little bit bigger and tubular. So then they got me inside that, and then everybody started pulling jackets out of their packs and stuff. The generosity of the people that responded to me is so touching. I still, to this day, I'm extremely touched. And how everybody focused on me and then just pulled out, it, not, am I going to get my jacket back? So pretty soon I had like nearly a sleeping bag worth of insulation. People didn't have good, uh, you know, ground cover. So I was still laying on the ground and kind of shivering. But the interesting thing, even though I was shivering uncontrollably, for some reason I didn't feel cold. My hands and feet still weren't cold. I didn't feel, you know, sometimes cold can feel like torture, you know. But I was shivering, but I wasn't cold. And then there was a delay uh, because it was, it was proving really hard to carry me. I'm about, I was about 215 pounds, which I don't feel that heavy, but when you're dead weight, it's pretty heavy. And so we weren't, weren't getting anywhere. And so I remember one guy sat down next to me and sat me up and just hugged me. I didn't realize at the time that they had phoned back to Jay Pistono and said that we're having a problem here. A guy might be having a heart attack. They didn't say it was me. Jay, I know Jay, but he didn't know it was me. And so he went around to the cars and said, you know, there's a guy out there. They're trying to carry him out. Might need some help. And I think 10, 15 people put oh, yeah. their skis back on. Yeah, at least. And 
skied out a mile and a half with no more urging than that. I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero. You can support this project and the Teton County Search and Rescue volunteers by making a donation today. To learn more, visit www.tetoncountysar.org slash donate. When Jake uh, sent us off of our woofer class, he had said something along the lines of, I hope I never see you guys in a rescue scenario, but I'm going to be happy if I do, <laughs> something you know, along those lines. And I do remember Jake coming flying down the skin track at us and looked up at me and said, Mook, what do we need to know? Yeah, and so Jake pulled his tarp out and we wrapped ski poles in it and formed a stretcher just like we had done in class. He had the tarp and that was proved to be the only solution for moving me. It, it is surprisingly hard to move an inert big person across deep snow on a steep slope. I think the thing to understand is, is that everybody was post-holing carrying him. So it's not like we're walking down a sidewalk trying to move them. We're trying to move over a half a mile where everybody is thigh deep in snow and everybody keeps pushing. It was just a matter of moving, you know, more people in, switching people out as they were getting exhausted and, and keeping Dr. Slim moving. Having so many volunteers skin out so quickly was really helpful because everybody took their skis off and started boot packing a path ahead of us. Um, because it had just snowed and it was really deep and that's a really steep, it's not a steep skin track, but it's on a steep angle. Exactly. And so carrying somebody is really tricky because the downhill person is significantly lower than the uphill. The uphill guys had to lean over really awkwardly and yeah. post hole. Right. And the downhill guys had to hold me up practically by their waist. And then what happened was they couldn't see me very well because I was inside that cocoon, the tarp obscured me more. So they kept asking me if I was okay, because the main risk in that situation is cardiac arrest. And so I remember here, I hadn't thought about that, actually, it's funny. But when I heard somebody talking about, well, you know, if we have to do CPR, we'll have to pack out the snow and stuff. And then someone else goes, you know, like, (laughs) I wouldn't want to hear that. And so then I was thinking, oh, yeah, oh, that would be unpleasant. That was my thought, you know, <laughs> right. having guys blowing in my mouth and pumping. I think, oh, wait, I won't be here. And that's when it hit me. I can really die right now. I began to get really calm because I've had a chance when I was living in Nepal to study with Tibetan lamas for a long time. And how your state of mind when you die and how you face that was really prominent in my mind. I teach Buddhism here in Jackson every week. So the interesting thing was I thought about my family. My wife was there. I have two kids. I thought about them for a minute, and I thought, you know, if I don't die, then I'll still get to be with them, which I'm grateful to be still with them. But if I do die, I'll never see them again. I was able to put them out of my mind. It sounds funny, but it wasn't like, oh, God, I know I'll never see you. I didn't say this or that. It just, I, I dropped it, and that surprised me. Then I started trying to meditate and relax, and so I had some experiences in that regard. But it allowed me to stay really calm. Being calm at the moment you die is very important in Buddhism. Dying like, ah, yeah, I can't take it, you know, is, makes it harder. 
the idea is that your mind actually does continue after you die. And some people later said, oh, you know, I bet that calm helped keep you from having a cardiac arrest. It's good that you could meditate. It wasn't my motivation. I didn't know if I was going to die or not. But if I did, I wanted to be prepared. It was a kind of a dichotomy of what the rescuer is struggling to carry me across this slope and me actually feeling really remarkably relaxed and calm at that moment. So in the middle of that, I had a a little more intense experience where I kind of visualized my Buddhist teacher. Actually, I felt for a little while that I was that I was going to die. But then this little voice said, it was my voice, but I don't remember generating the thought, but it said, but if it's okay, I wouldn't mind sticking around for a while. And then I felt it all pulling back. And then the vision went away and I felt very relaxed, but I was no longer trying to meditate. I was a little bit more able to participate in the rescue. I could get my car keys out and give it to my wife. And then we were getting close to the helicopter. I was so surprised that following summer to hike up there and find that the distance between where I had my heart attack and where the helicopter landed was not very far, but it took an hour and a half to get me there. I lived in Kathmandu from 1983 to 1998, and for 10 years I was... I was the medical director of the Himalayan Rescue Association, so I was in charge of rescue in all of Nepal for 10 years. And so I had flown in a lot of helicopters and rescued a lot of people. And so I knew that a helicopter wasn't going to be landing where I was. And so a helicopter came in, flew right over. I could hear. I couldn't really see. Then they went and landed at the uh, big electrical tower there. So we had to get there. When we rendezvoused with the team, we transitioned by basically just taking him from the tarp and set the tarp right into a litter. And then we continued to move him in the litter to get him over to the helicopter. It was really unique. We had really poor weather, too. And I immediately had called for a helicopter based on his presentation. I'll never forget the conversation having with Nicole. She had radioed in to let us know that she had landed. Weather was closing in, and I knew it was a concern. And she said, how long? I just kept thinking to myself, this guy needs the helicopter. And I said, it's probably 10 or 15 minutes. And I said, can you wait? And she fired back. She said, I'll be here. Reassuring, but at the same, at the same time, it was just one of those. It was like, is this going to happen? Are we actually going to get him on the helicopter? So we got him to the helicopter. We did not have him packaged as a patient. So in a perfect world, we would actually put him supine on his back in litter, I made a decision at that time to, to put him into the, into the ship as a passenger, um, not as a patient. So we put him in upright. Basically, the decision that I was playing with was, well, if he does go into cardiac arrest, it would be preferred to have him packaged as a patient. I made a decision based on time that maybe we can get him to the hospital a little bit faster. Mike Moyer was the paramedic who I transferred care to. I'll never forget in the debrief with Mike, he said, I want to start off by saying it was the right decision. He was like, but after I hooked up the cardiac monitor to him and I realized how bad the heart attack was, he said, all I kept thinking was, is how am I going to do compressions on this guy if he goes into cardiac arrest? You know, the collaboration with the public was something to this day that I've never experienced with the team. And that was that 
We probably had 17 or 18 bystanders on scene that were engaged in the process of assisting getting Dr. Schlimm out. And then when we transferred over to the team for the last probably 150, 200 yards getting to the helicopter, the group of bystanders kept, stayed with us. So when we got back to the ship, not only did we have 12 team members that were there, there was another 20 bystanders that were involved in it. And it was maybe the most unique scene because as the ship picked up, everybody started high-fiving and hugging one another and really beginning to recognize that we had a a tremendous collaboration between the team and the public. I'd never seen us celebrate in the field because we had transferred over that way. And so there was this kind of high climax where everybody was under the gun. And it was like, we need to keep moving. And then it was like, as soon as the ship picked up, it was like, we did it. When I got to the emergency room. I saw the monitor for the first time, and there's a kind of EKG change that's different for, for the location of your heart attack. With mine was an LAD, which is a main vessel to the pumping part of your heart, which is not a good heart attack to have. They call it the widow maker. So I saw that, and I thought, wow, because 28 years earlier, I had met my main meditation teacher when I was called to see him when he was having a heart attack. And the main thing I was impressed with at that time is he had no fear. He's having a massive heart attack. He's up on the side of a mountain in a remote place, and I had to drive and walk up to him. First person I'd ever met who was having a heart attack who wasn't worried about it. And I thought, how could that ever be? It was the exact same heart attack. And so I got to the ER, and I'm looking at the monitor, and I go, that was my first lesson in Buddhism was I better, I better figure out how to do this. And then I, I actually had. I'd had the same heart attack in a remote place without fear. I ran into Dr. Schlim's wife two days later in the grocery store, and she picked me out. I said, yes, I, you know, I am Jake Urban, and she gave me a big hug. It's just really cool to be part of that really big picture of a community coming together. You know, we talk about our community in terms of Jackson Hole, but really what we were looking at is, is the backcountry ski community in Teton Pass on the south side of the pass that day. It was really cool to see everybody dropping their day and really being like, no, this is what I'm here to do today. And then I ran into some of the guys later and I, and I thought, I go, well, what did you guys do after that whole rescue? And then they go, well, went skiing. <laughs> And I thought, man, I love this town. You know, I mean, if I had been in a life and death physical struggle for an hour and a half, I probably would have said, I'm going to go, that's enough for today. But it was a powder day. And did you go skiing after that? Yeah, we went up to Edelweiss. <laughs> yeah. Kind of gave me a sense of hope. Unfortunately, I've been a part of rescues that have not ended in a positive manner. Actually, prior to. Dr. Schlims, I was living in New Zealand for six months and watched a girl go into cardiac arrest and had to give CPR, and she didn't make it, so that was definitely on the forefront of my mind. Mm, mm. Seeing this go smoothly and with a very, very positive outcome, I mean, we're talking today, yeah. um, almost five years later, it, it feels good when you can be a part of the solution. 
and helping. You know, having been an emergency room doctor for four years before I moved to Nepal, and then in Nepal we had a lot of a uh, lot of various dramas and things. But I had, even in my training, I had realized one thing that's really important for people to realize is that what matters is how well you do something. The outcome is out of your hands, but we tend to measure our efforts by the outcome. So for all would-be rescuers out there, rescue people best you can. Don't go up and down with whether they make it or not. I know a lot of rescuers want to save lives. You could rescue someone who lives and feel really badly because somewhere along the line you made a bad decision, you just got away with it. And other rescues, you can do absolutely everything perfectly and they don't make it. So it's really important to realize the outcome isn't the measure of your success as a rescuer, but how well you judgment, how well you do things. The other thing that the Lama said when he visited is that, you know, the fact that the helicopter was already at the base and came really quickly and rescuers showed up right when I needed it. If I had delayed having my heart attack by 10, 15 minutes, I would have been down in Black's Canyon and it would have been over. I couldn't even phone down. So he said that because I had rescued so many people while I was in Nepal, then when I needed it, then rescue was available. So at least you got that going for you well. Good karma, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) They were so willing and so able, so physically capable, so kind. If there's a lesson for all it would-be skiers out there that dropping your own plans, helping somebody else is a really wonderful thing, and I'm eternally grateful that that happened. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.